Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. Everybody enjoying the Advent season? Well, here's one surefire way from now, from last year on forever, we will, we will know that Advent has arrived at Quest. It's when people start posting on Facebook things ribbing Wendy about her proclivity to want to steal the baby Jesus out of every manger she sees. In fact, we have uh, one of our beautiful uh, little children there who was basically saying, Jesus is going to be cold if we don't take him home. So we have a little Wendy in the making. Isn't that awesome? She's influenced a lot of people. So Advent is designed uh, to be this beautiful holy time that we reflect on Jesus coming 2,000 years ago and get to celebrate the fact that he set in motion at that point something that which will finish all things, make everything right, and how he also wants to be present in our today of our lives as well. So when we ask the question, who does really needs Christmas? Uh, kind of obvious, the answer is every one of us, right? Uh, last week we had some fun talking about names that are given to people who, that uh, you know people might have wanted to think a little bit more about how that that name would work like, like the woman named Helen Back. Um, but today in our culture, we often name our kids after someone popular. That seems to be, be becoming the trend. Someone uh, from a book or someone from, uh, the, like, we like the sound of the name. Actually, one of the, the most prominent trends right now in our culture as far as the naming of new babies is naming children after the TV series characters from the Game of Thrones. Although there are some pretty good cool names there like Roos and Cersei and Melisandre, and I hope I said all those right. Got a question. Do you really want to explain to your kids seven or eight years from now that you named them after a conniving, adulterous murderer? Is that what you really want to... I was talking to Derek about this, my son, and he also drew to my attention that another trend in naming kids today is that people are naming their kids by their favorite Instagram filter. Makes sense, right? So among boys, the most popular names are Lux and Ludwig, Amaro and Reyes. And among girls, the most popular are, these actually work okay for the girls, Valencia, Juno, and Willow. But see, I don't even know what these filters are because I have an Instagram account, but I never use it. And I have no idea whether they make me look better or not. I I don't know what they do to me. But I feel like naming your kid after uh, a tool you use to get social media likes isn't necessarily the best approach to finding the name for your child, right? Now, not being primarily concerned about what the meaning of the name is, is in stark contrast to the names given in the Bible. A name in the Bible reflected something very specific about the person's character or what they were meant to be in life. So maybe you name a child David, and because you value David in the Bible, or because you love what the name means, it means beloved. Although, uh, you know, come to think of it, the biblical name of David, David was also a conniving, adulterous murderer at one point in his life, so maybe he's an awful lot like the Game of Thrones after all. Even when you've been given a wonderful name, when you have said the name over a million times, it kind of begins to, you know, lose its thing, especially when you start saying, hey, David, clean up your filthy room for the 2000th time. Something about that special meaning of the name gets lost. 
fully exploring the meaning of a name is really what this series is about. We're looking at the names Isaiah, the titles Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, about who Jesus would be when he came. And Isaiah proclaims these names to help us get a more clear picture of who God is to us and who we are in relation to him and what we're about in this life. Would you read the main text with me? And I'd love for you to read it out loud with me. It just says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Let's, let's read those first two lines again because this is, this is really for us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, last week we talked about wonderful counselor. This week, uh, today's descriptor we're going to talk about is mighty God. So I'd like to pause for just a minute and have you think. What does mighty God mean to you? How have you seen God show himself as mighty in your life? What comes to mind? As we ponder that, I also tend to think that maybe for many of us, we will discover that there's this gap between what mighty God means and maybe at times how we've experienced God in our own life and how we know him in our own life. And our purpose today is really to help us begin to close that gap as we just kind of explore and worship God for who he is in this name. See, what mighty God means is it means he's strong, he's valiant, he's fully capable, he's the hero, he's the chief, he's the captain. The etymology of the word that's translated mighty says, basically says that God wants to meet you as the one who is above everything, the one to whom there is nothing that is a problem in this world. So think about what did hearing mighty God to the first people who heard it in the Jewish times, what did they think about that? Isaiah told them this baby's going to be born, the government's going to be on his shoulders, and that would not have freaked Israel out. They were expecting a Messiah who would make the government right, make things right there. But when Isaiah says his name will be called Mighty God, this would probably have either caused confusion because they were expecting a man, but here he says God is coming, or they would have simply thought that mighty God was just meaning that God was going to be with a, a prophet, kind of like he was with Elijah or Moses, but that God himself was coming as a man would not have been fully understood until the time of Jesus. I mean, with the benefit of the hindsight, we, we see that and we see how this name, this, this mighty God actually distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Mighty God sets Christianity apart from every single other religion on the face of the planet. Most other religions have a central figure. And that central figure is usually a man who leads the people to a path to God, reveals how humans get to God. That central figure, whether it's a a teacher, a holy man, a scribe, some inspiring person, a prophet or whatever, that holy man, this teacher is sent to teach each of us that religion's own set of rules that if you follow those rules well enough, they lead you to God or to enlightenment, whatever the goal of that religion is. Yet Isaiah tells us there's this baby coming unlike any other baby in all of history who will save us, who will redeem us, who will point us to God, and that baby is also God himself. God himself will come to earth and show us who he is. Paul actually captures this idea centuries later in the New Testament, Colossians 2. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is fully God and fully human. John actually, uh, Jesus' closest disciple, writes in John 1, he uses the uh, Greek word logos that's translated word to refer to Jesus. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now that is a pretty mighty God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. See, we as humans don't create anything. God made it. The best we can do in science is discover God's wisdom in how he created. Creation, humanity, or the cosmos does not create a single thing. God made it. If there ever was some sort of a Big Bang event in in history, it was an act of God, not a random happenstance. He is over all, before all, wiser than all, knows how everything works. So was Jesus a man? Yes. Jesus was the greatest man ever. Was Jesus an unbelievably amazing teacher? Absolutely. He was the greatest ever. Was Jesus a great moral, spiritual man? Yes, absolutely, to perfection. But what the Scripture specifically says over and over again in both the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus and in the New Testament is that Jesus is infinitely more than a man. Jesus is mighty God in the flesh. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But that's just more than a nice idea for us, too. There's a whole lot more practical impact and insight for us in that concept because all other religions are the story of humans introducing us to God. But Christianity is the story of God coming as a human to introduce himself to us. In every other religion, humans have to move heaven and earth to live up to the standards so that they can find God and find divine enlightenment and live in that. But Christianity is the account of God moving heaven and earth to find us and bring us close to him in favor and in blessing. See, that means Christmas is so different. It's so much more powerful than just celebrating a great man like Gandhi or MLK or Billy Graham or any other great figure in history. No, Christmas is where we are reminded that we stand in awe of a mighty God whose love and compassion for us is so great that he came to us as a baby. And that baby we call Jesus our mighty God, the truth and power that stands above all others, the one who is truth and power. See, when we hear the name Mighty God, it it reminds us of the big picture. It reminds us of how much each and every one of us need a Mighty God to fix our world. As we look back on Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of the Bible, the world was perfect. But as Genesis 3 comes along, we see this first cosmic lightning bolt that interrupts our reality after Adam and Eve choose to trust themselves more than God and bring sin, and sin enters into the world. And everything God made got whacked in that moment and went out of whack. Sin has affected everything ever since. See, we live in a world that has never functioned like it originally was created to function. We have this broken representation of what God wants, which means disease, 
It means funeral homes. It means emergency rooms. And it even means yellow jackets, not, not the kind in Europe, but the kind who sting you. How many of you remember, how many of you were here the Sunday a couple of years ago when I got stung by a yellow jacket while I'm preaching? I'm sitting up here slapping myself silly and you guys are all laughing, wondering what's going on. And many of you may or not know I slapped it and I thought it was dead. It went down in my shirt and kept stinging me in my shirt while I'm up here. So I believe the yellow jackets are of the devil. This is my personal opinion. But see, there's no disease in Genesis 1 and 2. Disease was not what we were created to live in. There was no brokenness in love and in relationship in Genesis 1 and 2. We were not created to live in that. In Genesis 3, we see sin take effect and take a hold of everything like this wet, heavy blanket covering everything with death. And everything alive today is dying spiritually, emotionally, physically, cosmically. That's where your wrinkles come from. Death is not what God wanted. So Isaiah prophesies of a mighty God and, uh, and, and what the world would eventually saw is this mighty God in Jesus stepping into the world, living a life of no sin as an innocent, pure one, choosing to pay the extreme penalty for every one of our sins. Not just dying a horrible death, but taking upon himself all the wrath meant for every single evil deed ever done in all of history. And then being resurrected from the dead so that he can say, death, I beat you. That is what our mighty God is. See, there's this actual piece of art that Wendy ran across this last week uh, that I think is really thoughtful in its representation of what we're talking about. And we'll just take a moment to look at it. It entails two women that we most would never think about putting together in the Bible, separated by several millennia. It's Eve on the left and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, on the right. Notice Eve, this representation of the, of the first human representing all of humanity on the left, still downcast covered in shame from the sin she and Adam brought into the world. Paul in Romans 5 says it this way. He says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Jesus adds actually more clarity in John 8 when he says this power of death and sin is something to which we are enslaved. He says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And we see this slavery depicted in this by the snake, the serpent, still being wrapped around Eve's legs. Sin still has this tight grip on humanity, representing the inability of any of us to walk free of sin on our own. Yet in Genesis 3, even where sin enters the world, we, even at that point we see God talking to Adam and Eve and, and actually what we're going to read in just a second is him actually talking to Satan in that moment about Jesus, about the connection between Eve and Mary prophetically and what God says. He says in verse 15, He, Jesus, will crush your head, referring to the head of Satan and sin. And you will strike his heel, that last line foreshadowing Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. So we see in the painting Eve reaching out in this prophetic hope, touching the pregnant womb of Mary, reaching out to Jesus. See, this mighty God who would crush the power of sin and death. Eve, even in her shame, is longing, enslaved and yet hoping. 
even while yet clutching the forbidden fruit, uh, not even understanding how sin is still so embedded in her, the lie of sin and Satan. Hope within a broken and imperfect world. And it's, none of us lives life without shame of sin and brokenness. I probably say this too much, but none of us even live up to what we believe is right, much less what God says he wants us to be. And yet there is hope that we can all reach out to. On the other side of the painting is Mary. Can you imagine uh, being Mary in this picture and the feelings and the thoughts that she has knowing she's carrying this miracle within her, this miracle that she's been told will save her and will save all of humanity from the power of sin and death. Can you imagine that promise, trying to even hold on to that promise? The wonder, compassion, the humility Mary must feel as she, as she tenderly carries that promise within her. Two women and one hope for all of humanity. See, there's this promise Eve was given that one day the mighty God, this God above all, would resolve things and provide us with hope that is sure, redemption. And the baby in Mary's womb who would be this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus. Two women you wouldn't normally think about putting in the same sentence, but whose stories are woven together from the very beginning by God, from the fall of everything into sin to the very first Christmas where redemption erupts in physical form within our world. See, the Almighty God, the King of Kings, has come, and salvation is here and readily available and touchable to every single one of us. I mean, in many ways, this picture is a picture of you and I, both being identifying with Eve, caught in still the sin and the shame. And, and, and yet, as, as Mary, as followers of Jesus, carrying this promise, this hope, this forgiveness, carrying the Holy Spirit, the mighty God, and His promises within each and every one of us. See, the common hope of all of us, a mighty God who is coming to us right where we are, is all about God's kingdom coming on earth here as it is in heaven. Christmas gives us the foundational meaning. And for those of you that recognize that, that's part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. It gives us this foundational basis of that as at Christmas. It means the mighty God wants to continue to break into your reality and my reality and the reality of the world around us. That's the reason we're a church who believes that God still breaks into our reality with things like healing. And in speaking to us, whatever that looks like, he speaks to us through his word and, and he'll speak to us outside of his word through ways that are always consistent with his word. But he wants us to know his voice. He wants us to know how he speaks to us and leads us and, and prompts us to do things and gives us impressions to do things. We believe God answers prayer. We believe God has the power through us to remove injustice, to relieve poverty, to heal bitter divisions between people and even countries. We believe our primary goal in life is to increasingly learn to know the Holy Spirit, know that deposit of the mighty God that resides within each one of us, to know how to hear Him, to follow Him, and to walk in His power so that God can do things through each and every one of us that are more than just mere human human power that we could not do on our own. See, Jesus didn't just come to save us for eternity and then leave us to wallow in this life without hope. He won the victory, securing eternity for all of us who choose to receive his loving forgiveness 
and follow him. But he did more than that. He sent his spirit so that we live like Mary with this promise that resides and power that resides within us to bring salvation even into our existence now. That's the reason I love what Bill Johnson, a pastor and author, is famous for saying. He says, if the gospel of Jesus doesn't have power, it's not good news. That's the reason I get so excited when I hear about you sensing God and knowing how he's trying to prompt you and lead you and taking risks and, and, and giving you dreams and fulfilling those dreams. I get excited about people taking the risk to pray for others and, and God showing up in those moments in a way that both the person praying and the person being prayed for encounter God in a way that they go, wow, that was something bigger than me. We've seen even some physical healings, and I want to press into that more because Jesus' physical healings were a regular part of his ministry, and Jesus says to his disciples that they're supposed to be part of your ministry too when you learn to follow the Holy Spirit. I will do that kind of thing through you. And he's not just saying to his 12 disciples, he's saying that in the context, especially of his prayer at the end of his life, for every follower of Jesus to experience that. One of the most fascinating and inspiring lectures I ever heard in life was by a guy who had a Ph.D. from Princeton. And uh, his dissertation was focused on whether you could find documented, proven evidence of healing and miracles done by the Holy Spirit uh, and being present in the church through every century since the time of Jesus. And his conclusion was a resounding yes. And before you dismiss that as somebody finding what they really wanted to see, remember his dissertation had to be defended before a panel of PhDs, most of whom were not favorable to that conclusion. And they all said his research passed with flying colors. Are we in this life always going to have to deal with living in an unfinished, not completely resolved reality of brokenness still around us? Yes, Yes, but Jesus, the mighty God, comes to us to show us that he wants to break into our reality and is working in our reality through you and I and us to follow him and participate with him in a way that he breaks in. The hard part of the journey of that, though, I think for all of us, is not allowing the circumstances around us that reflect brokenness and disappointment to cause us to stop hoping and stop pursuing God. That's actually one of the reasons we're going to show you a video here in just a second of Emily Dinsmore. And and, and what I love about her story is that it shows a glimpse of how God is reaching into her life through people around her, but reaching into her life and showing how he's mighty, even in the midst of an unresolved story of disappointment. Would you turn your attention to the screens? My husband and I first came to Quest in 2014 after relocating to the Columbus area. And when we were looking for churches, we were really looking for one that we could connect with others our age, other young married people who were going through the same life stage as us. And from the first day that we came to Quest, I just knew that this was going to be our church home. In 2016, we were given the diagnosis of infertility and we were devastated. We both loved children. We were starting to dream of our future and our family and we suffered in silence for a really long time. 
I was going through waves of grief and then hope, then disappointment and hopelessness. And this was a cycle that I would go through month after month of struggling alone. Through this time, we really leaned on each other and we leaned on God and we just pressed on. We realized that we needed to share with other people. We needed the support of friends, um, trustworthy people in our church that could lift us up and support us and pray for us during this time. So we made that decision together to start sharing with those in our quest groups. And it was very difficult to do, but we are so thankful that the Lord had given us a community to, to be a part of, that we could lean on in this time of struggle. It's just been very liberating to be able to talk with other people, other believers that know us and are um, totally supportive of, of everything that we're going through. And through that vulnerability, we were able to connect with another couple in the church that were actually going through infertility themselves. And it was really cool to be able to connect with another couple who truly understood what we were going through and to have that support in one another. We were surrounded by our community groups and just um, had all these prayer warriors on our side as a result of sharing. And I don't know where we would be if it wasn't for our Quest family and how they supported us and pray for us. I know that God has had me on this infertility journey for a reason, and I know that even if I never become a mom, that he will be glorified through this testimony. The greatest lesson that I've learned through this journey is that I don't have to go alone. I have the support of my church family and friends. Having trustworthy people that I can confide in during the difficult times and celebrate with during the good times, that's truly why I love Quest so much. Just having that community to to support me and that I can lend my support to is such a blessing. We love BJ and Emily so much. They're amazing, wonderful, and what I've loved most in uh, the little bit that I've been able to watch them walking through this journey is how they realize they don't have to go it alone. They've allowed this mighty God to still be a part of even this yet unresolved piece of their lives. But so often we get discouraged with the disappointments and we disconnect from this mighty God, and that's one of the reasons we need each other. We need to sometimes just reach out to the faith of each other. I want to invite you, if you are facing either infertility or pregnancy loss, if you are struggling through that, and, and especially if you're doing it alone, don't do it alone. Emily's going to be starting a group after the first of the year. There will be more information coming where you can get together. You can find the support. You can find people who are going to love you, care for you, and help you stay connected to a mighty God as this mighty God writes the story of your life, and it's going to bring you through some stuff. If you're interested uh, and you know Emily, just contact her. If you don't know her, uh, please contact one of us, and we'd be happy to introduce you and make that connection. You can contact the office as well. So question, how do you see mighty God in Jesus? Well, I think there's lots of ways we see mighty God in Jesus, but one of my favorite ways is, well, it's actually a favorite way for me because it's a story that touches one of my greatest fears. When I was in 
elementary school and the draft for Vietnam was still out, I used to think, well, man, if my number comes up, I am definitely not getting drafted. I'm going to choose where I go because if I'm going to go there, I'm going to die. I'm going to either die getting shot out of the air or I'm going to die on solid ground. So I did not want to be in the Navy. Uh, Navy, the ocean terrified me, sharks, death, storms, drowning, it just terrified me. And I, and I never was one, I've never been one who likes horror movies, but, but for some reason I was, I guess maybe this is part of my warped personality. I loved reading growing up all these stories, especially of World War II naval battles, which, you know, you read the Indianapolis story and it's like, you know, 500 people die at the hands of sharks and you don't ever want to go in the ocean. Mark 4, we see Jesus in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee in the pitch black of night, and a storm comes up, a raging storm. The sea in Bible times and ancient times was always seen as this place of death, of danger, and of dragons. If you look at the uh, maps of ancient times, you almost always see it depicted that way. So I'm not the only one who's averse to the sea, thankfully. In the storm, the waves are crashing over the sides of the boats. The disciples are bailing water as fast as they can, and they can't keep up. And please remember, many of the disciples are experienced seamen. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen. They are A-list sailors. And yet we see the disciples, they were certain they were all going to die. And Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. The disciples yell to wake him up, and they say, Don't you care? And isn't that an easy place for us all to go in life? I, I wish it wasn't so easy for me to go there, just get to this point where I say, God, don't you care? What are you doing? We know that Jesus, after this, said, peace be still. We know that the storm ceased and the waters became still and they made it to their other side of their destination. But I want to focus a little bit our time today on before the peace be still was said. And here's what I, how I want to go about that. Rembrandt did this uh, painting in 1633 of Jesus and the storm with the disciples. And Rembrandt paints the scene just after Jesus wakes up, but before he says, peace be still. And if you study his picture, there's actually 14 people. The picture will be up on the screen in a second here. There's actually 14 people in the boat. And, and now Jesus plus 12 is 13. So where's the 14th person? Now, the common understanding is that Rembrandt painted himself into this picture, as he did in some of his other works. So Rembrandt sees his own life in the storm with Jesus. He's a part of it. And I think it begs us a really profound question, both from this text and the painting. Where do you see yourself in the boat? Or do you even see yourself in the boat with Jesus? And where do you see Jesus? You see, there's this nice theological truth, but there's a whole lot more than that. This, is, this question is really gets at the real life, in the flesh stuff. What he's getting at in this question is this, is this point where you get in life where life is happening and it, and it isn't so much right or wrong or what you believe. You know what's right or wrong and what you believe, but in the moment of chaos, of threat, of fear, of confusion, in the moment of whatever storm is going on in your life that makes you feel like you're not going to make it, that you're going to drown, you end up being faced with a deeper question. Where does your theology of who God is fit with where you are and where God is in this moment of your storm? Where do you fit in the picture? Where's God in the picture? What does mighty God mean to Ross, to Sam, to, to Mitch, to Mary, to Judy, to Heidi? What, what was it like for Peter 
whose boat it was, to be in this predicament, fearing for his life, knowing, in fact, I think Peter was probably thinking, along with the rest of the disciples, I've seen you raise the dead, Jesus. I've seen you feed four or 5,000 with just a few fish and a few loaves. I've seen you heal people. I've seen you cast out demons. Jesus, I would follow you anywhere. But right now, you're sleeping. You're not helping. You're not solving the problem. God, you're not talking, not listening, not acting, and I'm about to drown in life, overwhelmed, and you're silent. How many times do we as people come to church and we can honestly say, great, your theology is you know, good. I love how you talk about the scriptures. But honestly, right now, none of that really makes a difference because I'm facing really tough stuff in life and I don't know how to get through it. And I don't know where God is in my life right now. See, the reason so many people distance themselves from God or turn away from God is not over an intellectual reason. When we do that, when we distance ourselves or turn away, we usually come up with some sort of intellectual reason to cover things up. But, But the real issue, the real problem is generally it's over a moment in our life when the storm is going and I'm about to drown and I don't know what to do. I don't know where you are, God. And it seems like you're sleeping. It seems like you're not talking, not doing anything. Scripture is so honest so real to life, so raw with human emotions. We even see the same idea portrayed in Psalm 107 in the Old Testament. It says, Some went out onto the sea in ships, and they saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. And this is a terrifying thing. You're, just imagine your boat going over 60, 80-foot waves. They mounted up to the heavens, went down to the depths in their peril, and their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired destination, their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. This is mighty God. Proverbs 3 says about how mighty God can affect our lives in a real practical way. It says, when you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your feet from being snared. See, it's one thing when my faith is something I believe in, And I'm confident of that. I know God's blessings and it's a good time. But I know there are people here today who are facing incredibly dismaying storms in life of sickness, of relational pain, and things that make you feel like, am I going to make it through this? Am I going to drown? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be hurt in this? And you're wondering, where are you, God? And you're wondering where you are in this picture of the storm. I mean, you might be crying out, God, will you wake up? God, will you still the sea? Will you calm this in my life? Will you take this away? Will you get me to my destination safe, wherever that is, because I'm not even sure where I'm at in that. You are maybe even past the point of terror, past the point of of fear. You're at the point of exhaustion going, "I, I can't even fight anymore, God. I don't even have the strength to take the next step. I don't know what to do with this. All I can say is, God, I need you, and God, where are you? 
I want to be careful here because I know I can't fully relate to whatever circumstances you may be going through, whatever fear or whatever storm you're in. But, but I can say this, as a person, I've been in a lot of storms in life that I didn't think I was going to survive, that I thought weren't going to turn out okay, that I thought I was going to go under, that were going to overwhelm me. And I know God has brought me through those storms in the past. It doesn't always make the next storm easier because I can still find myself in that same place. Where are you, God, in the next storm? But I can look back and know that God has brought me through and known that the haven to which he brought was indeed good. See, Jesus is more than just a wise teacher pointing us to good and God. No, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God who is over and above everything. When things look impossible, when everything looks dark and raging and there seems like no way through, no way out, Jesus is mighty God, and he wants to be mighty God in our lives. So if you're here today especially and you're overwhelmed with a problem, the answer to who needs Christmas is all of us do because every single one of us need a mighty God. We need someone who is bigger than all of the problems we will ever face, greater than anything in our life, greater than any authority, any boss, any system that feels like it's unchangeable, any relationship that feels like it's unchangeable. God is mightier than that. And we all need a mighty God. Christmas is remembering that that is the moment God set the wheels in motion to bring a full resolution to the pain and damage of sin by overcoming the penalty of sin, by overcoming death. And he guarantees that he now is with us. Even as, as pregnant Mary had mighty God in him, he's with us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So where are you today? Whether your storm is big, whether your storm is small, I want to invite you to just take a couple moments of reflection before we continue to worship. And I want you to ask God, where are you? How do you want to be mighty God to me in this moment? And, and, and maybe, maybe you can't even picture that fully yet, so maybe, maybe this moment is you just praying, God, I don't see a way through. I don't see where you are. I want to be faithful. I want to follow you. I want to trust that you are mighty God. Would you just help me? Would you just help me? So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, there's nothing magical about that. Just prevents ADD from going on. And just talk to God about the storms in your life right now. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you, mighty God, are with us. That everyone here who is a follower of you, you are with each and every one. For everyone here who's seeking you, who's not yet a follower of you, that you are pursuing them with love and kindness to be mighty God. Lord, I know how easy it is, how many times I've been at that place where All I could say, God, was 
Help me to believe. Help me to be faithful. Help me to follow you. Be mighty God to me because, God, I don't see it right now. Lord, I pray for everyone who's in that place today that you would come by your spirit right now and that you would make your presence known to us. Just come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.